open your Bibles, please, to Luke 19. In a moment, I'll read from verse 28. Enjoyed our Sunday school class this morning with our third through sixth grade as Mr. Don taught on the doctrine of the Trinity. And your kids probably will tell you that in the true false question and answer, I said another heresy. I said false and everybody else said true. And Mr. Don corrected me. So if, there, if you hear any rumors out there from that class, I corrected myself after I said it. So, Father, we are so thankful that you are our vision, our true wisdom, our true word. And we pray as the Bibles are open this morning, God, that we hear from you in a powerful way by your spirit. God, we just are desperate to know who you are. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Luke 19, I'll read from verse 28. When he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, so those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. The account of the triumphal entry is also known, as you know, Palm Sunday, and it's recorded actually in all four Gospels. 
we're using Luke kind of as a platform this morning to launch the sermon, but we're referring to the other gospel accounts uh, throughout this morning as well. Palm Sunday is the Sunday before the Friday when Jesus is crucified. It's obvious why it's called Palm Sunday. As Jesus enters Jerusalem, John's gospel records that the people were both waving palm branches and also putting them on the ground for this colt to walk across it as Jesus is mounted on that colt as he comes into Jerusalem. Over the last several weeks, Jesus has left Galilee and he's been marching and marching and marching toward Jerusalem and he knows exactly what's going to take place. Hold your place in Luke 19 for a moment and have you turn over to Mark 10. Mark has a few other details that help us understand the triumphal entry even a little bit better. You know, it's so hard to just jump into a narrative in the Gospels where Jesus is involved because there's so much before that narrative that adds to what you're reading. There's so much after it that adds to it. So it's just really hard to stop. You almost want to go back and cover everything, but we can't. Mark records a meeting with blind Bartimaeus in Jericho as Jesus is approaching Jerusalem, and Jericho is about 15 miles from Jerusalem. The encounter with this blind man was not an accident, and it parallels what's about to take place in the triumphal entry. Bartimaeus obviously knew who Jesus was, because verse 46 and 47 state that that all of this commotion is around him was an account on the fact that Jesus was coming by. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he begins to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And surely he cried this out over and over and over. His one chance to know that he might be healed because he knew of Jesus and his reputation. His acknowledgement that Jesus is the son of David was a proclamation that he knew that Jesus was the Messiah. He knew that Jesus was the anointed one. He knew that Jesus was the promised one from the Old Testament to come and bring eternal, lasting peace to God's people. And he, as the lone blind man, is proclaiming that Jesus was the Messiah even before the people in the triumphal entry said it. And notice verse 48. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. This really does foreshadow what's going to take place in the next scene. Because Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, claiming to be Messiah. And when the people acknowledge it's him, we saw in Luke's account, that the religious leaders are the ones that say, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to be quiet. And that's when Jesus says, If they were silent, the very stones would cry out. It's important for us to note that it wasn't the religious leaders. It wasn't the priests and the Sadducees and the Levites and the leading men of Jerusalem who were making the proclamation that Jesus was king. It was the outcasts, it's the blind men, the poor man, the, it's the nobodies, it's the sinners and the tax collectors, it's uh, the ones nobody wanted to hear from, and everyone wants to shush them who made the proclamation. 
And notice, too, that as the people try to shush Bartimaeus, Jesus, in verse 49, calls him. And what does Bartimaeus do in verse 50? Throwing off of his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. His throwing off of his cloak to come to Jesus. And the people in chapter 11, verse 7 and 8, putting their cloaks on the colt and on the ground for Jesus, really marks connecting these two stories. So the encounter with Bartimaeus is not in the Gospel of Mark right before the triumphal entry by sheer accident. Because this narrative explains at least four things. One, it's the outcasts of society who recognize who Jesus is as the Christ. Secondly, Jesus opens the eyes of the blind when they cry out to him. Here it's physical blindness, but Mark is pointing to our spiritual blindness. Three, there are many who are trying to silence the proclamation that he's the king. And then finally, the proclamation will never be silenced because from the rising of the sun until the time that it goes down, the name of the Lord will be praised. Now, there's more to the story than that, but it's really a precursor to the triumphal entry because we can at least say that the healing of Bartimaeus sets the stage for the response that Jesus receives in Jerusalem because outcasts will come to him, but the religious leaders will continue to try to silence the proclamation that Christ is the king, and they will silence him. They'll eventually turn the crowd away from Jesus. They'll move the crowd to cry out to save an insurrectionist named Barabbas. And they'll nail Jesus to a cross. So the triumphal entry leads to the coming death of Jesus. And the real triumph comes in the glorious resurrection. So as you go back to Luke 19 for, uh, for a moment, go back to Luke 19. And I want you to notice again. The middle of verse 37, middle of verse 37, where Luke writes, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. You see, like Bartimaeus, the multitude of his disciples are proclaiming he's the Messiah. And like the crowd around Bartimaeus, the Pharisees are trying to get the people to be quiet. Trying to shush them. They clearly don't see Jesus as the Christ. They don't see him as the Messiah. They don't see him as the king. They simply see him as a teacher. That's why they address him that way. And they actually tell him. They tell Jesus, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to quit shouting these things. What an amazing answer Jesus gives. If these were silent, the very stones would cry out. In Isaiah 55, we're told that the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. We do understand that all creation bows before Christ. 
We do understand that every molecule gives him glory. Every wave that crashes against the shoreline gives him praise and glory. Every sunrise, every sunset proclaims his greatness and his power. And here in Isaiah 55, it's the mountains and the hills that sing and the trees of the field clap their hands to his glory, to the glory of our great God. But did you ever imagine that inanimate objects, lifeless stones, like the stones Jesus is talking about, these lifeless inanimate objects will cry out too. Now, we don't know where he is on his journey to Jerusalem. He may be referring to boulders on the side of the road, but he might be close enough to the temple to be talking about the stones in the temple. I referred to one last week, the cornerstone of the temple that's still on the western wall is 40, is 40 feet long and four feet, eight feet wide and four feet tall, and it weighs 80 tons. And Jesus is saying, if the people are silent, these lifeless, massive, inanimate objects will come to life and will cry. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You cannot silence his praise. Remember when John the Baptist rebuked the Pharisees when they came out, when he, when, when he was baptizing in Matthew 3. And he says to them, do not presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. I mean, God created the world out of nothing. He created Eve out of one of Adam's ribs. He, he, he can raise up children of Abraham from stones. And he can make the rocks cry out. Because he will be praised. And it seems to me that the Pharisees' attempt to shush the people's praise is what prompts Jesus to weep over Jerusalem back in verse 42 of Luke 19 again. When he says, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Then verse 44, because you did not know the time of your visitation. The, the triumphal entry is, is his self proclamation that he's the king and the phrase you did not know the time of your visitation is an indictment on the nation for not recognizing him and they will experience God's fierce wrath in 70 AD when this prophecy of verse 43 and 44 are fulfilled when the city of Jerusalem is is attacked and the temple is destroyed Verse 43 says, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And it did happen in 70 AD. I mean, for three years, Jesus had been healing the sick and raising the dead proclaiming the good news that the kingdom was here. He proved it by his works. He proved by his deeds that he was God. He forgave sins. He cleansed lepers. He cast out demons by doing only the things that God can do. And yet, and yet, the indictment is you did not know the day of your visitation. You did not know that I'm here. You did not know the Messiah had arrived. 
You did not know the king was here. You did not believe in the promises in the Old Testament that were all fulfilled in me. And it's such a contrast, or better, really a conflict in the triumphal entry for Palm Sunday. And we have to understand the conflict. Because it's so hard to imagine Jesus coming into Jerusalem today, Sunday, being praised and acknowledged as the king, the son of David. And by Friday, the crowd's going to shout, give us Barabbas, crucify Jesus. And the clue, I think, that Luke gives us is to show us the conflict is the crowd pronounces him king. But the first thing he does after this, if you call it a verbal inauguration, the first thing he does is goes and cleans up God's house in verse 45. You see, he's not coming to establish an earthly kingdom. He's not coming to overthrow Rome. He's coming to establish peace between God and man, coming to establish a heavenly kingdom. And now we'll see this this morning by looking at this event from three different sets of eyes as we go back to Luke 19 again. First and foremost, we're going to look at this through the eyes of Christ. Secondly, we're going to see it through the eyes of his followers. And then thirdly, we'll see it through the eyes of the religious leaders. So Christ, his disciples or followers, the religious leaders. And what you'll see from the narrative is that Jesus came in peace and openly claimed to be king. And yet he was not the Messiah or the Savior the people wanted. Now, it's going to take a while to get to the punchline of the sermon. I have a lot of groundwork to cover, so hang in there with me, and we'll explain the significance as we get toward the end. Uh, the most important thing about Jesus coming into Jerusalem is that he is king. He's finally here. And he really is making what I would call a grand entrance. This is not the first time he's been to Jerusalem. Remember, he spent most of his life in his Galilean ministry. He lived 70 miles north of Jerusalem, around the Sea of Galilee, and did nearly all of his ministry there, except for the times when he came down to Jerusalem for various feasts and festivals. In John 2, he was at a Passover celebration. In John 5, he was at another celebration. In John 7, he was there for the Feast of Booths. In John 10, he was there at the Feast of Dedication. Now, he probably was there for more, but those are the things that the gospel writers record. But on this particular trip, he, he, he's not coming in as usual. Most of the time when he was in Jerusalem, he went in under the radar. But today, today, his hour had come, and he does, in fact, make a grand entrance. This is the time. It's time for Jesus to make his announcement. And since he's the one that tells his disciples to go get the colt, we know that this is his plan from the very beginning. We know that his entrance into Jerusalem on this day was clearly his idea. And he makes the announcement or the proclamation of who he is really by the animal that he rides on as he leaves Bethany and comes down the Mount of Olives. Bethany is only two miles from Jerusalem. Bethany is where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived. That's where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead as well. And it's, it's on the eastern slope. And as, as you come from the Mount of Olives, you actually, it's about an 800-foot descent 
down toward Jerusalem. And as you're on that descent, from what I understand, you can see the whole city of Jerusalem, and you can also see the temple as well. In Bethany, he tells two of his disciples to go to the village and find a colt that no one has ever sat on and bring it to him. Of course, the disciples do as they're told, and the owner of the colt gives it up freely because the disciples tell him that this is what Jesus told them to do. Now, we know the colt is not the colt of a horse because Matthew quotes Zechariah 9, verse 9, to tell us this entire event is a fulfillment of a prophecy proclaimed by Zechariah several hundred years earlier. Quoting Zechariah 9.9, Matthew writes, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast, a burden. So this is the colt of a donkey. And the significance in being a colt of a donkey cannot be overstated. The cult was sacrificial. This cult communicated royalty. It symbolized peace and humility, and it fulfilled prophecy. Now, to understand this, we first have to remove the, whatever images we have in the 21st century, whatever reputation you have of a donkey, we have to get it out of our minds. We think of a donkey, we think of, of dumb, we think of stubborn, uh, think of somewhat useless. In fact, uh, everyone got a good laugh watching donkey basketball not very long ago over at Skeels. If you're at a party with 10-year-olds, what, what game do you play? Pin the tail on the donkey with these blindfolded children. And of course, those of you, like me, who like Shrek, have a whole new idea of what a donkey is. This is not the reputation of a donkey in the first century. Now, the gospel writers make a point that the colt was one that had never been ridden. This demonstrates the animal was actually sacrificial or set apart for a special use. In the Old Testament sacrificial system, if you offered an ox as a burnt offering, it had to be an ox that had never been yoked ever. It had to be an ox that had never plowed. It had to be an ox that never worked. It was to be set apart for all of its life until the time of the sacrifice. See, this made sure that you weren't taking an ox, working it in the field its, its entire life, and when its life was over, that, when it's all wore out, all ragged and useless to you, oh, then I'm going to offer my sacrifice to the Lord. No, 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 that's not what he says. When you offer a sacrifice, you offer your very best, a young, healthy ox who's done nothing to benefit you, who you have not used, you have not worked, because your sacrifice is just that. It's a sacrifice. It's a first fruits sacrifice. This is part of the significance of the donkey that had never been ridden or broken. Jesus was the first to sit on it because it was set apart from its birth, the task of bringing Jesus into Jerusalem to announce him as king. The animal was really sacrificial. Now, as a side note, you still have to recognize that Jesus is king over creation. Those of you who did watch donkey basketball over at Skills, can you imagine what would happen if none of those donkeys had ever been ridden on? It was bad enough getting 
mature donkeys to go where you want to go. But here we have a donkey that's never been ridden on, that's completely and fully obedient to the king's commands because Jesus rules and reigns over everyone and everything. Even the donkey was his servant. Now, secondly, it also shows that Jesus was royal. See, nobody rides on the king's donkey except the king. We won't take time to turn there, but in 1 Kings chapter 1, when, when Absalom, David's son, attempted a coup and, to, and to tried to take over the kingship as David was old and hadn't passed it on to Solomon yet. And when David found out about it, the first thing he did was got Solomon and put him on his own donkey and had him ride through the city to show that because Solomon was on the king's donkey, he was royal. And the donkey shows the royalty of Jesus. Thirdly, a donkey as an animal in this century symbolized peace, symbolized humility. One writer writes that in Palestine, the donkey was not a despised beast, but a noble one. When a king went to war, he rode on a horse. When he came in peace, he rode on a donkey. Now, this is really important because Jesus was coming into Jerusalem, not on a war horse. He wasn't coming prepared for battle. He wasn't coming to fight against the governmental systems that were in place. He wasn't coming to overthrow Rome. And it's what he rode on that tells us what his purpose was. By riding on a colt, by riding on a donkey's foal, Jesus is claiming to be king. He's not propagating an insurrection. He's not planning a coup. He comes in peace and he comes in humility. No, Jesus was not gathering an army to take over Rome. He's a king with a kingdom. But we learned last week that his kingdom is not of this world. And I already mentioned that the cult fulfilled prophecy. And I already read from the, the, the book of Zechariah through Matthew chapter 1. But just say it again. That behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Beloved, when they saw him coming, they, they knew the wait was over. Today's the day, Palm Sunday, triumphal entry. Today's the day that the king is here. The king who they're waiting for, the promised one, the anointed one, the Messiah. The one who was promised in Genesis 3 that one day someone born from a woman would come and crush the head of Satan. The one that was promised to come through the, the, the lineage of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah. The one that was promised to be a descendant of King David who would have an eternal throne that would reign forever and ever. It's, it's finally he's here. After centuries now of oppression, after, after the destruction of, and the captivity of Israel and of Judah, after the Persians and the Greeks and the, and the, and the, and the Babylonians and the Syrians who have all conquered them over the centuries. And after reading over and over, the promises, and hoping that a king would come, and living under the tyranny and the brutality and the hopelessness, finally, finally, finally the king is here. And Jesus, riding in on a donkey from the heights of Bethany through the Mount of Olives down to Jerusalem, and on that donkey he could see the temple and the entire city. This was Jesus' self-proclamation, his announcement. He, he's saying to his followers, He's saying to those in Jerusalem, to all the religious leaders, he's declaring, I am here, I am king, and I've come to bring 
salvation. He's a true son of David, bringing hope to the people. The long-awaited king is here. Now notice, secondly, the response of his disciples. They acknowledge that he is king, and if you turn back to Mark 11, we'll follow this, this narrative, Mark 11, his followers are treating him like the Messiah he claims to be. Mark 11, and I'll read from verse 7. His followers are treating him like the Messiah he claims to be. Verse 7, and they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Uh, these leafy branches described by Mark are palm branches in John's gospel. They're typically used on festive occasions and were regarded as tokens of joy and tokens of triumph as, as the people lined the streets to give him praise. Between the palm branches and putting their cloaks on the ground, the people are acknowledging that Jesus is who he claimed to be. In a sense, we're saying that they're agreeing with what Jesus is saying about himself. Now remember, these men and women don't have much. For some, a cloak is all they have to keep warm at night. And many of them put their cloaks on the ground. They're on the road, so the donkey that's walking is not walking on a dusty path anymore. The donkey is walking on what we would consider kind of a red carpet treatment. Being a gentleman and putting your coat down so that your wife's shoes won't get wet when she walks through a puddle. A sign of respect, honor, admiration, subjection. And they're quoting from Psalm 118 as they cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. This phrase means, Lord, save us. Save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is a direct quote from Psalm 118. And during the Passover celebration for centuries, Psalm 113 through Psalm 118 were chanted by the people as they longed for and they waited for the coming Messiah. They're there psalms of hope. They're crying out in hope that God would save them and save them now. And they're praying for the blessing that would come when the Messiah, who's of the lineage of King David, would come in the name of the Lord. And today, today their hopes were becoming complete. Christ came to save them. Christ came in the name of the Lord. Christ brought the coming kingdom as the true son of David. I mean, what a day it had to have been. Just so hard to capture the event, knowing that this was the fulfillment of not just decades, not just centuries, but thousands of years of waiting and waiting and waiting. So the followers of Christ that had come with him or escorted him into Jerusalem were agreeing with Jesus, claiming him to be king. The king had come. Hosanna in the highest. And there's that final group, the religious community, the leadership that consisted of the scribes and the chief priests, the Pharisees, who absolutely did not believe that Jesus was the Christ and they actually wanted him dead. If we turn back to Luke 19, we know that Jesus 
cleansing of the temple had to be the last straw for them. We know that Matthew's account that Jesus overturned the tables of the money changers. Uh, we know that in, here in, in Luke's account, in Luke 19, 46, Jesus says, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. Now this is such a true statement. There are three things going on in the temple at this time period that were completely godless. The first thing is that the religious leader, leaders allowed sacrificial animals inside the temple in what we'd call the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles was the place that anybody who was a non-Jew could come and pray, and they would come and pray, but they hardly could because they turned it into what would be a farmer's market, a, a bazaar, almost like an auction at the county fair. See, it made their life much easier by allowing all the animals to be inside the courtyard so when they could sell them, it was just easier on, on, on those folks who were doing the money changing. So there's no place for the Gentiles to pray. On top of that, there was only one acceptable currency in the temple. Let's say they only accepted pesos and you had dollars, but you had no control over the exchange rate. So you're paying for an animal that's inside that court for, for a, or a lamb or a bull in order to offer a sacrifice. And you bring your cash and they exchange it in whatever they want to get their cash. And they, and they got you on both ends. They're literally stealing from you and you have no recourse. And then thirdly, if you brought your own lamb or your own goat or your own bull from your own flock or herd, and you brought them in, the priest would examine that animal, and he probably would find a blemish. You could only offer unblemished lambs, unblemished rams, and unblemished bulls. And if he found a blemish, and you can't argue with the priest, then you would have to not sacrifice your animal, pay for their animal, pay for the exchange rate, and they're ripping you off at every level, and you had no power to appeal. Jesus comes in, and he cleans house. And when he declares, my house shall be a house of prayer, isn't that a claim of deity? Isn't he claiming to be God? Well, of course he is. So he just, he just dismantles the religious cash cow. He upsets the entire financial market. He cleanses the temple, claiming the temple's his. And then notice verse 47. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. Now we know the religious leaders had already begun preparing a plan or a plot to kill Jesus, but don't miss, the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. See, these are the ones who will help the religious leaders stir up the multitude to cry out to crucify him. They're not recognizing him as the Messiah. They're not seeing him as king. They're not part of the group crying out Hosanna. And they hate him. For, for disrupting their corrupt schemes. And they're able to do this because the people thought that the triumphal entry was a new national Israel. The people thought the triumphal, Israel, the triumphal entry was the beginning of the overthrow of Rome. They thought the triumphal entry was going to put the nation of Israel back on top of the political map. And when it doesn't happen over the next few days, their cries of Hosanna on Palm Sunday will turn to crucify him on Good Friday. 
Now, if you doubt that, turn with me for a moment to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. This is right before the ascension. Some of the last words that Jesus spoke with his disciples, or the disciples asked questions here, right before Jesus ascends to the Father's right hand. In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, literally the last question that disciples ask, they're with Jesus. He says, so they say, so, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? I mean, even the disciples had the mindset that Christ would, would come with, have an earthly reign. After being with Jesus for three years, experiencing his death, his burial, resurrection, seeing him throughout the 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension, and they're still wondering about an earthly kingdom. Now, Jesus not only doesn't answer their question, he moves them away from building an earthly kingdom to challenge them to continue to be witnesses as they proclaim the good news about him to the ends of the earth. Jesus' final words on earth promote his heavenly kingdom. You see, they understood that a Messiah was coming, but they didn't understand that salvation he was bringing was not a salvation from politics, was not a salvation from Rome. It was a salvation from sin. The freedom he was bringing was, was a freedom from sin. The peace he was bringing was a peace with God. The kingdom he was bringing was an eternal one. They wanted earth. He offered heaven. They wanted the here and now. He offered him the then and there. They wanted world peace, and he was giving them eternal peace. They wanted the rover government to be overthrown and cleaned up, and yet he cleans up God's house. Their minds were on earth. His mind's in heaven. See, this is why he wept over Jerusalem. Because they didn't recognize the king was here. It wasn't the kind of king they wanted. They're looking for a king, but not the kind of king that Jesus claimed to be. One commentator writes that the people expected the Lord to set up his rule in opposition to that of Rome and deliver the Jews from the yoke of their oppressors. Or the crowd expects Jesus now to set up his rule in opposition to that of Caesar to drive Rome out of Palestine, to conquer the world for the Jews. And by Friday, when it didn't happen, when Jesus spends a whole week in Jerusalem after the triumphal entry and has not moved forward to overthrow Rome, it didn't take much for the religious leaders and the leading men to persuade the people they should seek the release of Barabbas instead of Jesus and the crowd who claimed first and proclaimed him as king is soon going to shout for him to be crucified. So ultimately, Jesus was not the savior they wanted. He wasn't the kind of king he's in, they're interested in. A, a humble king? A king who comes in peace? A king on a donkey? A king who won't make my life better right now? A king who won't give me health, wealth, and prosperity? And what they missed is the same thing that we miss today. The same thing we've missed for 2,000 years. Why did he come? Why did he live? Why was he born? Why did he die? Angel to Joseph. You'll call his name Jesus, and he'll save his people 
from sin. Everything in the Old Testament pointed not to freedom from external tyranny. No, it pointed to freedom from sin and a right relationship with God who created you. It's all about being restored to what we lost in the garden. I mean, do we really care about having a few better years on this sin-cursed world when all the riches of Christ and all the riches of eternity are available to us? All the Old Testament pointed to this. The exodus from Egypt and the slaughter of the lamb, the night of the Passover, the giving of the law, the ceremonial and sacrificial system, the promises to Abraham and Jacob and Judah, and the promise to David that one of his sons, one of his offspring, will sit on an eternal throne and be an eternal king. Then the prophecies, then Isaiah 53, and the prophetic word that predicts that a king is not coming to overthrow Roman tyranny, but he's going to come as a suffering servant who will come humbly, who will be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, who will be smitten by God and afflicted for our sin, who who will come and die as a guilt offering, not to free us from, from government oppression, but from the tyranny of sin and death and God's judgment as oppressed us from the time Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. You see, he's going to Jerusalem to suffer and die at the hands of the Jews and the Romans. And this is why, right before the triumphal entry, Jesus states in Mark 10, verse 45, For even the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, his ride into Jerusalem was the first step in giving his life. His triumphal entry was leading to the sacrificial death. And it's his sacrificial death, the giving of his life, is what ransoms us or purchases us or redeems us from our bondage to sin. And though today he's being worshipped, in five days he'll be killed. And all of this is part of God's wonderful and amazing plan for our redemption. So, so what, what, what does this mean? What, what about you this morning? Do you know why he came? Do you know why he came? Are you going to be among those who didn't recognize the time of his visitation? Are you going to be among those who didn't recognize the time of his visitation? You see, the Jews were held accountable for the knowledge that they had. They had the law. They had the Bible. They had the tabernacle. They they had all the items in the tabernacle. They had the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies. They had the Ten Commandments. They had their entire history that was rehearsed when, when they went through the Passover celebration year by year by year. They always acknowledged the great things God had done to the next generation. They had the priesthood, the ceremonies, the system, the prophets. And it was their pride and their self-righteousness and their arrogance and their unbelief and their stubbornness and their refusal to be humbled that blinded them to the coming of the Savior. And they experienced God's wrath because of it. And you and I will be held accountable for the truth that we've been given. 
God has revealed himself to you in nature. All creation declares his glory. The sun coming up and going down. The leaves changing colors. The spring grass coming up. The robins running along the lawn. All creation tells us there truly is a God. We know there's a God. That's the, the revelation he's given us and we're accountable to it. But he's also revealed himself to you in your conscience. You've known right from wrong since, since you're three or four years old. I'll never forget, we were with some friends, we, Deb and I, before we had kids. Of course, you learn a lot about sin and kids once you have kids. But before we had kids, someone from our church was looking at his son. And he had told him, no cookies. We're at like a potluck. No cookies at all. And um, he, he, I think he, he, he came up with a whole mouthful of cookies to his dad. He said, he said, did, did, you, did you have a cookie? He said, no. He said, what did you have? And he went like this. That was half. He didn't have one cookie. He had half a cookie. But he was, he was busted. One way or the other, he was busted. And we learned very early on that certainly, certainly, no matter how old you are, how old you are, we know there's a conscience. God has revealed right and wrong to us from the time that we were born. He's also revealed himself to you by putting eternity on your heart. You know inside that there's more than the 60 or 70 or 80 years that God's given us. Ecclesiastes 3 declares that there's eternity on the heart of every man. He's also revealed himself to you in his word. He's revealing himself to you right now in this preached word. Because Bartimaeus is a testimony to you right now for you. If you don't know Christ in your own blindness, you need to cry out to God for mercy now. He's also revealed himself to you in the person of Jesus, who suffered and died on your behalf. And with all of this revelation, even here this morning, he is calling you to come. He's calling you to follow him. He's calling you to trust him. He's calling you to believe in him. Do not miss his visitation to you this morning, because you are a sinner. If you don't know Christ, you cry out to him today. You cry out, Hosanna, Lord, save me from my sin and bring me into your eternal kingdom. And he will. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, how thankful we are for your revelation to us. Father, we do not want to miss your visitation. We do not want to miss Lord, when the Holy Spirit presses us to follow you. And if there's anybody even here this morning, God, who has been saying no to you, who has refused to bow before you, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. I pray, Father, that the day would come and we have the baptismal waters stirred constantly, Lord, because many come into saving faith. How thankful we are, Father, that even as you came into, the, into, into Jerusalem, Lord, declaring yourself, Lord, to be the one who was promised, knowing that the very people who are declaring your praises will soon uh, cry out, crucify him, crucify him, and yet, and yet, on the cross, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. How thankful we are, God, that you're the one who calls. You're the one that brings us to yourself. We pray that you bring us to yourself here this morning. In Christ's name we pray.